Hello, everyone. My name is Caroline Hoxby, and I'm a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I want to welcome you to Hoover Capital Conversations. As you know, the Hoover Institution is one of the nation's leading research centers, and it has a mission that is dedicated to producing policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Capital Conversations in which you're participating today. This is a series where Hoover senior fellows like myself get to talk about pressing policy issues with the very makers of policy. And we're going to be talking about some of today's most interesting and pressing issues. This is an informal dialogue and we'll be inviting you to participate. Today, we are very privileged to be talking to Commissioner Michael Johnson from the state of Alaska and Chancellor Eric Hall from the state of Florida. And we'll be discussing the state of education one year into COVID. As part of the discussion, we will be taking audience questions. So let me encourage you to submit your question in the Q&A section, which you can reach by locating the button on the bottom of your screen. So please just submit your question there. Let's get started with some brief introductions of today's guests. I know I won't do their full curriculum vitae um, credit, but I'll give you at least a brief introduction to each one of them, and then I'll let them introduce themselves as well. Michael Johnson is Alaska's Commissioner of Education and Early Development, and he has been in that position since 2016. Prior to becoming the commissioner, Michael Johnson served in the Copper River School District as the superintendent, as a school principal, as a district curriculum and staff development director, an elementary school teacher, and special education program assistant. And during his time as its principal, Glen Allen Elementary was recognized as a blue ribbon school by the US Department of Education. Eric Hall is Florida's senior chancellor of education. Prior to joining Florida's Department of Education, he served as the deputy state superintendent for innovation at North Carolina's Department of Public Instruction. He has a doctorate in educational leadership and policy and more than 24 years in experience as a school administrator and network leader for 56 schools across nine states. Eric serves as the chief advisor to the commissioner in Florida, Richard Corcoran, and he is joining us today in the commissioner's place. As an audience member, you might want to know that Alaska and Florida are two of the most innovative states in the field of education. In particular, despite having very different circumstances in many ways, both states have been great innovators in remote learning and homeschooling, so we can learn a lot from them in this pandemic year. But the commissioner and the chancellor are also great experts on other issues facing education at this time, so we do not plan to confine ourselves to the topic of remote learning. So welcome, Commissioner Johnson, and welcome, Chancellor Hall. Perhaps we can start our discussion with remote versus in-person learning. Commissioner Johnson, could you just tell us about what was Alaska's experience over the past 
year? What has it been like for students? What has it been like for families? What has it been like for teachers? Well, uh, thank you, Caroline. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, what a privilege to participate in a, a capital conversation uh, and especially to be connected with the Hoover Institution and all the great work you do. So thank you for the honor of being here today. Thank you, Eric. It's always great to be in a meeting with you. So thanks. Um, in terms of the experience, uh, you know, the, it, the experience has varied, but with all of us this past year, it's, it's been different um, for all of us, no matter how it's varied. Just the mitigation practices, when you think about it, that we've all adjusted to, um, have created extraordinary experiences for our students. But at the same time, the experience of our, experiences of our students during the pandemic, both the successes and the challenges have illuminated the realities that have existed prior to COVID. Uh, the need to innovate and modernize the public education system for our students has been evident for a number of years as we've watched progress in other sectors of society. The desire and necessity for greater choice in education has been needed for decades. The gaps in achievement and opportunity have been, an, have been a reality for far too many students for far too long. For example, in Alaska, we have a 54 point gap in average grade four reading scores based on the 2019 NAEP assessment. So though there have absolutely been unique elements of this past year, the variety of ways students have experienced instruction during the pandemic are more of a reminder and a call to action than any brand new problem we've experienced um, over the past year. We should only be satisfied, not just when we return to in-person learning, but we should only be satisfied when every student has the opportunity to receive an excellent education every single day. Well, something that you just said reminded me of the saying, I'm not going to get it exactly right, that whenever you have a bit of a disaster, you realize that you need to do some sort of a, the equivalent of a home renovation, right? And so this is an opportunity to do a bit of a home renovation for education in terms of all kinds of different things. Is there, in Alaska, you might remind the audience of how big it is as a state. Alaska might have some special uh, lessons for states like say Wyoming, that's also a very big state and very dispersed population of students. Any special lessons for a Wyoming or a Montana? Uh, you know, well, as you said, Alaska is um, very large. I mean, we, we uh, someone has said it's like having a school in Miami and a school in Billings, Montana, and then spread out in between. We have school districts that are as large as some states. One of our districts up at the very top of Alaska is about the size of Indiana, but uh, there's only about 2,000 students spread across that district. So um, remote um, has, um, you know, a different meaning up here maybe than it does in some other areas. We have many places you can only fly to or get to by boat in the winter uh, by snow machine. And so um, delivering instruction in a remote setting has been something that has been part of our um, experience in Alaska for a long time. We both uh, hopefully can offer some lessons to other states, but we also benefit um, from what we um, uh, learn from other states. But I guess a couple of things I would say um, is, first of all, realize 
that reality and opportunity have arrived at the same moment in time, but that moment's going to pass. Uh, and so, as you said, it's time for a renovation uh, like never before. Um, once we're past this immediate crisis, I think we'll find that remote learning has created an even greater appetite for instruction that transcends the traditional classroom. It won't ever replace teachers, but it will extend the benefit of great teachers to more and more places. Uh, a quick story, I live in Juneau, Alaska. You can only get here by plane or by boat, both of which can be tricky. You have to fly down into the mountains. I have a friend that's a pilot for one of the major airlines. And he has told me that uh, we, they can land now in weather that would not have been allowed to land in 25 years ago because of technology. That technology has extended the benefit of that pilot into conditions that they weren't able to land in before. Um, it has not replaced the pilots. The need for great pilots remains, but it has been able to extend their skills in ways that we couldn't before. That's true for teachers too. Technology will never replace teachers, but it does allow us to extend great instruction and the benefit of great teachers into situations we weren't able to before. And for more students, and for more needs that students have going forward. So um, this is a, a moment in time where opportunity and reality um, should force us to, to renovate and take advantage of some of the things we've been talking about for a long time. So let me ask the same question essentially of the chancellor. Um, what has Florida's experience been like over the past year? And what advice would you give to a state that has less experience with remote learning than Florida has, since Florida has a very famous virtual school. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, definitely appreciate the commissioner's comments as well. I think, you know, the lived experiences that we've seen this past year has done a lot to help us realize, you know, the strengths and the assets that are, you know, each of our unique states have in place already kind of going into this pandemic and then what are, uh, afford a virtual school. You know, almost two decades of that experience has helped us to look at how districts locally who have franchise models of, of virtual school options. And, you know, Florida is, you know, of course, not uh, unfamiliar with uh, emergency uh, management. You know, we've experienced hurricanes and we've just had to figure out how do we broaden some of those lear learned experiences across an entire state to deploy some of these strategies. And that's where, again, our virtual school systems, again, the state one, as well as the local ones helped us to make a really, um, I would say an efficient pivot back on March 13th of last year and move, you know, what was about 100,000 students or so that were taking advantage of virtual school models and moving nearly 3 million students and educators and school leaders into this distance learning uh, framework. And what we learned through that is that, yes, you know, we had systems in place, we had supports, but we also knew that was not a model that was going to meet the needs of all students. And so we took, you know, very urgent steps to say, okay, in order to empower parents and empower families to make choices that were in the best benefit of their child, uh, our governor, our commissioner, the leadership in our state stepped forward very boldly to say, okay, we're going to take the science and the research and the evidence and look at how we come forward with an order that was going to put conditions in place for all schools in our state to reopen at the beginning of the school year. And we did that back in August. So that was about creating, again, more choices. Now, that didn't mean that every child had to come to a brick and mortar setting, but it required that all districts in exchange for being able to create, you know, funding flexibility to keep our districts and our schools whole financially during that period of time. We made that pivot so that again, schools would be open, parents would have choices that were, you know, all aligned to what was in the best benefit of each individual child in our state. 
And, you know, I think from that lesson, you know, we realized that, you know, again, we had nearly 65% of our students, you know, about halfway through the fall uh, that were back into brick and mortar schools because they realized the value that direct instruction, you know, really played in the, in the learning options for, for children. You know, the power of a teacher is, is can't be replicated. You know, the commissioner mentioned earlier the new technologies and how that creates enhancements and gives you different agility and strategies that you can deploy to accelerate learning. All those things, again, being in place, but again, the spirit, the heart and soul of a teacher, you know, that, that just transforms opportunities for kids. And our teachers stepped up to the challenge. They, they went into the classrooms. Our school leaders created conditions to mitigate the risks. And, you know, here we are today, you know, with about 80% now of our students in the state either attending full-time in person or doing a blended option. And I think that speaks to the power of choice and parents making a choice that was in the best interest for them and their families. And we've done this from the very beginning when we made these, these initial steps, we said we had two primary you know, goals that we were gonna stay focused on. One was gonna be the safety and health of our students and our staff. And the second was gonna be, what were we gonna to do to create these choice options and strategically make investments through the CARES Act that would help us really you know, focus on closing gaps that we were concerned were exacerbated during this period of time. And, you know, from that, I think we have, again, some really good strong conditions in place. We've had some lessons learned, but between our district leaders, our school leaders, and most importantly, our teachers that stepped in to do the work that needed to be done for kids, I think we have a great narrative that we've been able to tell. And I think, you know, looking at the second part of your question about what similar things can other states, you know, maybe glean from our lessons learned or things that we would share. I think part of it is, you know, and again, I think the commissioner kind of alluded to this as well. It's about how do you do these things urgently while making sure that you, again, stay focused on the steps that are unique in each one of our cases, because not all states are the same and not all states have the same resources. You know, Florida, oftentimes people think of us when it comes to the theme parks or the beaches, but we have a lot of rural areas as well. You know, with 67 counties, you know, some, you know, six of which are the largest school districts in the nation, you know, six of the 10 largest school districts in the nation, down to some districts that have, you know, one campus to serve all the kids in their county. I mean, we have all those variations and, you know, we did what we needed to do. We leaned on our local leaders to help us think about the conditions we could create through flexibility, through waivers, while also making sure we moved urgently to get, again, parents the options that they needed for their kids. Well, you know, Florida has a tremendous history of trying to offer families choices and has been always on the forefront of, um, I would say very broadly construed the school choice options. And so all kinds of different options, private schools for students with disabilities, the virtual school, school choice within a school district, charter schools, all kinds of things. Florida has always been sort of on the cutting edge. And I think maybe that habit of mind almost has been helpful in the pandemic because Florida's habituated to the idea that parents and families can make um, good use of choices. Completely agree. And I think that, you know, the power of choice is that, again, it's, it's empowering that parent to look at what's in the best interest and whether that was pre-pandemic or during the pandemic. You know, again, those choices really mattered. And it's something that our families have really you know, come to appreciate. And I think that value has just been, you know, elevated during this period of time and even creating agility where, you know, schools that are maybe, you know, they're serving children that are in brick and mortar, but a parent needs to change a circumstance to transition them to a distance learning model for a period of time because of a health risk that maybe has come up. 
that kind of agility and that kind of choice, I think, has really empowered our parents in a very strong way. But I think overwhelmingly what we have seen over and over is that, again, the power and the influence of putting a great teacher directly in front of a child in a classroom, building not only those, those social supports and those, those, those learning supports, but also just, again, creating that environment for good, strong socialization and that our students feel connected to a school community. Those things right now help to balance what's important, not only on the academic achievement side, but also just as importantly, on the side that's gonna help our students you know, navigate and continue to know what it means to be part of a learning community. And that's, that's really something that we've seen very powerful during this period of time, where you know, we've seen too many children in some cases being isolated for too long. Nothing against technology and devices, but again, you can't replicate that lived experience of being in a classroom with your peers and knowing that kind of interaction that you have when you have a teacher that cares about you, your well-being, and ultimately your long-term achievement. And that, again, I think you know, the leadership in our state from the governor to the commissioner and even down to our district leaders, that leadership across the board has made the world a difference. And you know, we are going to continue to learn and grow through this. But that choice environment you mentioned, I think that has just really been a real strong catalyst for us in this process. So, uh, first of all, I think we all agree, at least all three of us agree very strongly that teachers are incredibly important. And I'm, I say that as a researcher, not, of course, everyone has the same experience as well as a person, as a student, but teachers are incredibly important and we know that that's true. And so teachers have been one of the biggest issues that have arisen during the pandemic. And so I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, a little bit about just teachers, how they've dealt with the transition, the sort of training that you think that they've needed. Um, I've also heard from some researchers recently that they're trying to understand, is it younger teachers who have dealt better with this, maybe because they're more familiar with technology? Or is it teachers who don't have children themselves, maybe because it's easier to manage the teaching and their own children's uh, schooling perhaps, that's perhaps taking place at home or is uh, partially on campus. Could you just talk, each of you, uh, talk a little bit about teachers and how important you think they are and how you think they've fared? And we'll start with the commissioner. Yeah, thank you. Uh, absolutely. Um, as I said before, um, technology, the, the great part about technology is, is not the bells and whistles of the technology. It's that it extends the benefit of great teachers to students in ways that we couldn't before. That's what uh, we should be excited about when it comes to technology. Sometimes we get excited about um, the technology itself or the device or whatever, when really uh, we should be excited about the teachers behind that technology. And um, it's been a tough year for teachers uh, in a, a lot of ways. Um, and it, that too varies um, from teacher to teacher. We have, uh, for example, um, we are working with our teachers in the state to um, establish um, training regarding uh, using uh, remote learning. So that's part of our partnership with Florida Virtual School. Um, their training in that area, the feedback we get from teachers that go through the Florida Virtual School training on how to deliver remotely um, is fantastic. They love it. But we also have teachers in a community in rural Alaska, small single site district, where there's not enough bandwidth to use technology that way. And they have hit it out of the park this year. They have established routines where um, when they were on uh, lockdown because of cases in the, the small community there, 
Um, the kids would come to the school, pick up their lunch and packets for learning, go home, connect by phone and other ways uh, with the teacher, and then come back the next day and drop off one packet and get another um, meal. And that worked great. And those kids have shown progress um, through math assessments and others. And so really remote learning is equipping teachers to provide a high level of quality instruction, regardless of you know, whether that is remote using technology, remote using not technology, or being back in the classroom and having to blend both for a mix of students, which is really challenging. Yeah, very challenging, very challenging to do that blend. Chancellor, do you have some remarks on teachers that you'd like to share? Well, considering both of my parents are public school teachers, my dad is still teaching to this day. And um, my wife works in the public school system as a school social worker. And so for us, I get to hear about it both at work and at home. So it's, it's always very fascinating to understand those lived experiences. And, you know, I would say, you know, we, we came out of the gate with a couple of things. And, you know, when we were navigating this back in, you know, again, last spring, uh, and I go back to that March 13th and the pivot that, that we were making. I think one of the things that we did in Florida that really talked about the power and the, the need for supporting our teachers really came from our governor and our legislature who made a historic investment at that period of time, even in the midst of all the budget you know, questions and all the unanswered questions that we had you know, globally about the pandemic at that point. You know, our, our governor and our legislature said, no, this is gonna be the year of the teacher. And they made a historic investment of $500 million in raising the minimum teacher pay, which took us from you know, somewhere around 25th, 26th in the nation in our rankings for starting teacher pay up to number five. And that was about, again, if we're going to do this work and we're going to double down on what we have to do to close gaps, and we knew it started with having great teachers. And, and that's been the work that we really tried to stay focused on. In addition to that, when you talk about training teachers for this kind of new way of maybe teaching, if you're used to being a, you know, a teacher who's in a, a direct, in, you know, direct instruction model with you know, teachers right there uh, working hand in hand with uh, students, I think the big thing is, you know, we had to get them conditioned to using things like Florida virtual school. So we reprioritized some of our Title II funds at the state level to give incentives for teachers to go and get trained on that platform. We worked hand in hand with our local districts to help teachers. Again, if we need to have flexibility, we deployed additional devices statewide with reprioritized funding. Again, we try to use any and every tool that we had available to make sure that we, you know, wrapped our supports around teachers who in turn we knew would wrap those supports around kids. And I think that again, for us has really paid off. And, and I would just echo what the commissioner said too. I mean, again, you, know, you, you support your teachers, the teachers are agile, they're doing the things they need to in order to support kids. And we need to continue to recognize that even coming out of this pandemic that it's been teachers that have made the world of difference in helping kids during this period of time. So um, I'm gonna switch topics now to talking about families because I know that's been a big issue during the pandemic too, but I do wanna leave some time to talk about school finances and how money has been spent during the pandemic. So we'll make sure that we get to that. And I can see that some of the questions that are coming up in the Q&A are about that. Okay, um, after teachers, probably the other biggest issue that has arisen is families and how they are coping with trying to do learning from home or trying to be partners to their schools. I think a lot of families have learned a lot about their own children during the pandemic and what goes on in school. So I guess what I'd like to ask each of you is, could you tell us about families who you think have maybe benefited from, or ways in which families may have benefited from the pandemic, or ways in which some families may have really lost out um, 
from the pandemic. And I think I'll start with the commissioner again, if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. I guess, uh, you know, families uh, that have struggled um, have been related to, you know, their economic well-being um, for one, you know, one issue. And that is, you know, when both parents worked outside the home and suddenly uh, their jobs continued, but the students uh, were not able to go to school in some of our locations. We've had some schools open the entire year um, and our urban areas has been the more difficult uh, challenges. So that's been very difficult for those families to, to manage that. Um, mm -hmm. Secondly, I would say uh, just the, the stress of, uh, you know, being concerned about your own child and are they making progress? How is this impacting them socially, emotionally and academically? Um, that's been uh, a, a burden and a, a challenge for families. Not that they weren't concerned about all those things before, but the pandemic just illuminated that in a way um, that um, made it difficult. Um, we've heard from some families though that have um, experienced um, homeschooling uh, th for the first time because of the pandemic and have found it something that they really enjoy. An example, I talked to one mom recently. She has two children, one in middle school, one in elementary. One of them thrived on uh, the at-home learning and being able to move farther, faster, and, and some of those kind of benefits. The other one uh, really missed uh, the interaction with other students and didn't do as well. And so as she ponders next school year, she's trying to figure out how do I accommodate both? How do I really experience a hybrid kind of um, uh, a model when it comes to education? And I think that um, for families across the country, um, they're still experiencing all this, so you know they need time to think about it. But I wonder once we're past the crisis, if we'll find that there's a, a, a greater appetite for flexibility that um, expands the walls of the classroom uh, beyond the school building. And uh, the challenges for the public education system, especially, is to figure out how to meet families uh, where they're gonna be at uh, once they process all that's happened and what they want for their child going into hopefully a more normal school year. Yeah, I, I agree with you that I suspect families will be wanting to have more flexibility. Having been forced to learn flexibility, they may want to have more flexibility permanently. Chancellor, some thoughts on families during this pandemic year and education. Definitely, you know, we hear that quite a bit as well, that. You know, parents had this insight into a you know a child's classroom now by, you know, being there to support them as they're navigating everything from Zoom to, you know, doing work through the different platforms that were out there. And you know, you can't ever underestimate the the power of parental support and engagement in the process. But at the same time, I think part of our concern was is that some of our most vulnerable students were the ones that were in some cases maybe not having that full access to the supports that you know we would want every child in the state to be able to have, whether that's because of access to you know, internet, whether that's access to any other additional supports that may or may not be available. And I think for us, that's where we figured, like, it's not like a stuck record, but you want to help students, you help parents by having the choices that they need based on their own unique circumstances. And I think that's where we try to continue to stay grounded through this so that, again, the parent that felt like they were being very successful and using the, the platforms that were made available, we, you know, we worked with districts to make sure that you know, throughout each of our emergency orders in this process that they were looking at progress monitoring data for their children. And if a child was not making adequate progress, 
the district had to engage then with the parent to say, look, your child's not making the progress that's needed. Can we look at another learning modality to see if that's a better, better impact? And so we really fostered that narrative, I think, throughout the entire process. You hear me talk about these emergency orders. The one that we did back in August was about getting schools all open for, for these choice options. The second order that we did in November to prepare for the second half of the school year was all about, let's look at the data, let's look at the information and use that to, to really drive the informed decisions and empower parents with information about the performance of their child at this point in time. So if you had your child staying at home and they weren't growing, how do we engage with parents in a very intentional way to say, okay, look, let's see what we can do to change the, the circumstance for your child's long-term success. Because the one thing that we, again, have really tried to pay attention to is what did the data tell us? And, and as a state, you know, we've had a long history of using assessment to drive, to drive outcomes and accountability. And, and when we looked back even over the course of the years of when we started here in our state with FCAT, and we looked at our third graders at that point in time that were scoring below proficiency, we knew that if we didn't have our students at a point of being proficient, only about 14% at that point in time moved up to being proficient by the time they hit 10th grade. So that means we had too many kids that were not ever getting to the point of excelling above that third grade rate. So that's where we had to use that data and information to really drive urgency in our conversations with parents, with our school leaders and district leaders to say, no, let's make sure we use this information. Yes, empower parents, work with parents and where these options are working, support that. But where they're not, let's stay focused on the child and really drive the supports we need to, to help parents make the best informed decision based on that same data for their child to get them into a modality that would help close really close those gaps and accelerate learning during this period of time. Well, you are speaking to my heart because I love data. And I think that states that use their data, especially to keep parents informed, that's, that's very special. If you don't know what is going on as a teacher, as a school principal, as a superintendent, as a parent, you, um, it's, it's hard to react in policy ways the right way. So I believe that those investments in data systems are just a, just a tremendous thing. Okay, now I'm gonna switch a little bit to finances and you can talk about, um, I'm gonna ask you a pretty provocative question and I'm going to see how you wanna answer it. Okay, so here's, here's the idea. Um, an issue that has been getting a lot of attention is differential access to technology, to the internet and so on. There's a lot of concern about rural households, but also a lot of concern just about low income households where there, there may not be the technology in the household. So here's my provocative statement. I'm a, an economist of education. So I pay a great deal of attention to school spending. And I know that there is probably no way to replicate great teachers cheaply, but I think there are ways to expand technology reasonably cheaply. So in 2017, 18, those most recent numbers I could get, per spending per student in attendance for the average American school, and this includes capital spending since technology is capital spending, current and capital spending, was about $15,000 a year. And a laptop currently costs between about two, uh, yeah, not a gaming laptop, but a student sort of laptop costs between $250 and $350 dollars a year. So as I counted, that's about 2% of school spending. So why has this year not been a year in which we could say, hey, we can totally overcome this problem of inequitable access 
to technology. I realize that it's a little harder on the internet. Not everyone could get high broadband speeds, but why has this not been a great opportunity to make a change for every student who needs that kind of technology? Um, so I'll start by saying, I think actually this year has created the conditions for districts to double down. And while many of our districts and schools did have, you know, local, what we call one-to-one -one device initiatives where they wanted every child to have a, a device that was assigned and provided by the school. You know, while we've seen that, I think in some cases, districts have really tried to leverage existing, you know, state resources, federal resources, even with the CARES Act. I think one of the hurdles that some districts had to overcome um, right up front was, uh, honestly, it was kind of a lack of um, access to devices because the entire globe was trying to procure devices to get in the hands of students. I mean, it was amazing in some cases, the wait list that we saw in some time, in some cases on back order for getting devices into the, into the hands of schools where we may have had some gaps. I know for us as a state, you know, we redeployed uh, funds to get about 30 some thousand devices out to some of our most impoverished kind of high need uh, rural areas of the state. And we got those pretty quickly because we were fortunate that we had an order that we could put in. We got that done. But after that, we did see where, you know, back orders became a little bit of a delay, but where we are today, I'm very proud of what our districts have done to remove some of those access barriers. Uh, we've had great partnerships with business and industry that has stepped up, you know, T-Mobile is doing some work with providing hotspots free to families that, that are in need and providing that access for, you know, addressing the gaps to uh, getting on the internet. Um, we've seen other business partners reach out and do the same thing with again, reduced rates or in some cases free for so many months um, of getting parents online that, that need that in their home. So I think collectively what's been impressive to me is how business industry or education systems have come together to create local opportunities to remove those barriers. And now it's gonna be, how do we foster an environment that um, doesn't allow that to slip back now that we have those conditions in place. And now that we have those tools, like everything else, those are capital investments. How do you sustain those capital investments over time? And because over time they will wear out, they will, you know, need to be replaced. And uh, I think that's the next next part of our conversation. But in most districts now, I think have gotten that access in place. And I think again, uh, our schools have done a great job. I'm very proud of the work that we've done here. That's wonderful, Commissioner. Yeah, thank Same you. Same question. I'll, yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll build off what Eric says. We, we have some great success in Alaska too. Um, we were pretty much one-to-one -one, um, in some districts, uh, more than one-to-one -one, um, when it comes to technology. And that some of that's by nature of, you know, our, our context, our geography, that sort of thing. But where uh, there were gaps, you know, we had teachers uh, riding school buses around Anchorage, handing out Chromebooks uh, at the beginning of the pandemic to make sure the kid had the kids had their device and were, were able to use it. Um, so my concern is less about um, do we have a device for every student because I think we're there pretty much, but does that device benefit the student? And I think that's where there's a greater inequity uh, is um, are our teachers equipped to make sure these devices extend the benefit of great instruction to every student in an equitable way. And so I think that's the challenge before us after this pandemic. As Eric said, we have to sustain the, the capital investments and, and the devices we purchase, but we have to work even harder to make sure those investments of public funds for devices for kids 
improves the academic outcomes for our students. Uh, and that, that may be harder than actually securing the devices. Yeah, I think that's a message. These are messages that really need to get out because I think people have a tendency, especially you know, journalists or, or, um, uh, or just ordinary people have a tendency to think that it's just lack of technology itself that is the problem as opposed to, can we use the technology effectively? Can teachers use the technology? effectively. Now we only have a few minutes left and I want to take some of the questions that are in the Q&A. And in particular, we have some questions that are about how are your states planning to distribute the funds um, that you're going to be getting from uh, either the federal acts or, or for, from other other funds that are responsive to COVID-19? I'll try to keep the question pretty general. Uh, I'll jump in and, and give a general answer, uh, not too specific yet, but uh, you know, the, the, the funding that goes to our districts, that, that comes with an instruction sheet pretty much from the federal government. So we'll, we'll send it out as instructed um, to our districts. The set aside um, and that sort of thing, um, we are, um, first of all, I've said to my team, uh, there is lots of pressure to tell everybody exactly how we're going to spend it. And I want to resist the pressure um, to rush to spend the money before we identify where the gap's at after all this money that's going to school districts. So I want us to take our time so that um, we can identify where there are gaps remaining after the money that's going to districts, because that's a far larger sum of money, um, so that we can uh, leverage and make sure that that money is working. And then the, the last statement that I've been saying every chance I get is, every penny of this money should improve the lives of our students in this state. It's a lot of money. It's a, a unique opportunity. And it's our responsibility to make sure it works for them. So that's gonna take thought, collaboration, uh, working together, transparency, a very public process to allocate those funds in districts uh, and the state. Um, but uh, I, I hope, uh, what I keep saying to folks is think five years down the road, uh, I sure wanna look back and say, man, look at the great things we did for kids with that money. I don't wanna look back and uh, feel like it was a missed opportunity. So for Chancellor, do you think that Florida's data systems, which are renowned, are going to help you evaluate in the end how good a use was made of the extra money that's coming in? You know, definitely. I mean, one of the things that we made a very strategic a decision on at the beginning of this pandemic was how are we going to even leverage things like progress monitoring data? You know, we've had you know, like again, most of the rest of the nation, you know, back last spring, we didn't have the end of year assessment data to help inform and drive decisions that we would normally be able to make at the beginning of this school year. So we worked hand in hand, you know, as one of the uh, elements within our orders was that districts would start to share their progress monitoring data back with us as a state. And we've used a pretty robust system to help us pull because districts use various tools that's all locally procured with different vendor assessments to kind of monitor progress of students in reading and math especially. So it's probably the largest collection we've ever done of that kind of progress monitoring. And so that's our interim data that's helping us look at where we have gaps currently. And we've been using that data to deploy additional resources like part of our CARES Act money 
we hired 20 additional regional literacy directors that are working locally with our districts on the implementation of the science of reading. Using that same data to help inform decision-making at the classroom level, the school level, district level, and even maybe at the regional level. So throughout this, we haven't like taken this pause on using data to make informed decisions. We've said, what data do we have available now? How do we use that to inform immediate attention and, and you know, interventions around the things that we need to do? And we've also done this, I think, in a very coordinated way. You know, one of the things that, you know, uh, we've been very fortunate is that, you know, at our Department of Education, we have everything from our Office of Early Learning all the way up to our post-secondary state college system. And when we designed our strategy, we did it in a very coordinated way. So it wasn't like, what did we just do in K-12? It's no, what are we doing to make sure we've got kindergarten readiness on the front end of our system and used funds to help really support, you know, at one point, uh, back in April, we had over half of our child care centers closed in the state. And because of the way we did our investments to get child care centers open and create those early conditions for learning, we were able to get now we're up like 99, almost 99.2% of our child care centers are open and able to serve families. We've done that bridging up into our K-12 system with these additional literacy initiatives with those reading directors. Uh, we put 20 million into supporting getting evidence-based reading curriculum, even more so into our early grades. Uh, that in conjunction with using this data for progress monitoring to make in, you know, those informed decisions. And then using data in the, in the meantime, even with enrollment data in our post-secondary institutions and you know, our coordinated efforts with the leadership of our governor using the GEARS funds to help do things like rapid credentials so that we could upskill our workforce to get back in as we were seeing industry shifts, especially when we had so much impact on tourism over the past year. So all those conditions collectively, going back to your question on data, it's how do we use the data now to inform the investments and strategies that we need to use to help address any uh, emerging gaps that could come from this pandemic? And then we'll continue to use the data systems that we have as we go forward to continue to put the, you know, the, the additional acceleration steps in place uh, in supporting our systems. So one question that we have in the Q&A, I suspected we would get, so I'm going to, um, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure that I'm gonna pronounce the name correctly, but this is Ona's uh, question. Um, she asks about costs and benefits, and I think this is a question that gets asked a lot. Online education, if you just do straight online education in a way that say some of the, um, let's say for-profit K-12 schools have done in the past or something like that can actually cost not very much per student, and especially the marginal cost per student can be quite small. Okay, so why, why is it that you do not think that that's a solution you know, going forward? Now that we've got a whole bunch of people who've had some experience with online education, a whole bunch of families, why is that not just the solution going forward? So I'll let each one of you respond to it, but only briefly because we only have one minute left officially, although I think we'll go a, a little bit over, but just um, commissioner and then chancellor, just a brief answer on that question because that gets asked a lot. Yep, uh, a brief answer is because no one solution works for every student. And so it's not the solution, but it absolutely is a solution. Uh, one of many that I think uh, we'll have learned and gained from the pandemic and so, um, it, it'll, it'll be something that we can use for some students, other students will have different needs, but that's also an opportunity is that we can differentiate and um, individualize instruction in a way that we couldn't before. 
True. Differentiation and individualization. Chancellor? You know, I'd say I would echo exactly what the commissioner just said. And for us, it also is about for parents that see that as the best choice for their child, they're going to have the opportunity to continue to do that in our state and use those tools and those strategies that best meet their needs. And for students that need other you know, learning modalities to support their overall growth academically, then we want to have those options in place. So it's taking the power of choice in conjunction with the power of data to inform the best decision for our kids. I think those are fantastic answers with which to finish. And I will say my own, even my own research, which is mainly on online higher education shows that it works much better for some students than it does for others. So that's very much in line with your um, comments. I'm afraid that that is all we have time for today. Let me thank uh, Commissioner Michael Johnson and Chancellor Eric Hall for joining us in our capital conversations. The Hoover Institution is very honored to have had your participation in this event today. If you're an audience member, you can learn more about this series, Capital Conversations at hoover.org forward slash Capital Conversations. I want to thank all of you for joining us today and participating. And I hope that you will tune back in on Tuesday, April the 27th for a discussion with Neil Ferguson and Senator Rick Scott. Again, thanks to the commissioner and to the chancellor for helping us with Capital Conversations today. Mm -hmm.